Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon about the miraculous healings of Jesus and some general principles about that from the Bible. And I determined that it, that raises questions about what it means then to pray expectantly. And this passage in Luke 11, verses 1 to 13, speaks to that very subject. So hear God's word beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence... He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That ends the reading of God's Holy Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have probably heard many sermons about prayer. And some of us uh, do pray a lot. Some of us don't pray much at all. Some of us used to pray and we've quit. Uh, But Lord, we ask that you teach us now and use this time together to move us to be men and women who know how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of the lessons which Jesus teaches in the New Testament are given in response to questions that were asked at the time. And here we have one such lesson. Verse 1 tells us the request that one of the disciples makes of Jesus. He says, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John, that is John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. Now, This is not an unusual request, but really what is unusual is what was not requested. You would think of all the things the disciples had observed up to this point. Perhaps he would have asked, teach us to perform works of power and miracles. Teach us how to heal people. Teach us how to answer tough theological questions that you seem able to answer. So why this request to teach them to pray? Well, they had watched Jesus. They had seen his habit of withdrawing from time to time to go off to be alone and to spend long hours with the Father in prayer. They had made the connection between Jesus' power and the authority and his teaching and his prayer life. And notice that Jesus did not have to tell them about the importance of prayer. He doesn't start there by saying, this is really important. You fellows need to do this. 
He had not lectured them on prayer. Instead, he had modeled it. They saw it. They saw it. They observed it in his life. They watched him pray. And they, as they watched that, they realized their prayers were very inadequate. And so in answer to that request, Lord, teach us to pray, we have 13 verses here, or 13 in chapter 11, that deal with this. And a simple outline is this. He's going to give them a pattern for prayer, which is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Then he's going to tell a parable about prayer, and then he's going to give a concluding principle about asking and seeking and knocking and the Father. So first, the pattern for prayer. It's actually an outline. We're very familiar with the Lord's Prayer, also from Matthew chapter 6. These probably are the best-known verses in the whole Bible. Now, the Jewish people were very familiar with formal set prayers. Their rabbis had taught them such. So it was not unusual then for Jesus to give a set prayer or at least an outline. And we think this is a model prayer. We think it's a model that we are to follow because it shows us three things. First, it says much about God. The prayer begins with putting God first. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, to quote also Matthew chapter 6. So it puts God first, not ourselves first in prayer. Our first concern should be God's glory, even as we pray. Second, it's a model because of what it says about you and about me. Verse 3 says... Give us each day our daily bread. It reveals that we are totally dependent on God for all of our sustenance and our needs and our, even our physical survival. Third, it's a model prayer because of what it says about sin. The final petitions all deal with the same subject. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. So it lets us know that our submissive hearts to God, our obedience is very important before the Lord, even in our prayers. So when he says, teach us to pray, it begins with this pattern for prayer. Christians through the ages have used the, the Lord's Prayer as an outline, as a model, not as an end-all, but to take those categories that are there in that prayer to use as a daily uh, model and pattern for prayer. Now the parable, he told, beginning in verses 5 to 13. A man is at home, and he hears a knock at the door. And he goes, and there is a friend, a man who is traveling, and he is dropping in unexpectedly. Now, this probably was not too unusual in those days. Apparently, it was common that because of how hot it was that people would travel at night when it was cooler. We know that the Jewish culture and the Middle Eastern culture were very esteemed hospitality to a great importance. And so this man shows up, and, and he needs to spend the night. But the host... Uh, has plenty of room for him, but he's out of food. Had not made a Kroger run, so there he is, and I need some food to put before this traveler. So he goes to his neighbor, and he does the same thing to him that had just been done to him. He begins to knock at the door. We're told that the houses in those days were probably one room. The family would lay out mats at night. They would sleep on the floor, huddle together. The man has his Do Not Disturb sign out on his door. But the first friend ignores it, begins to knock, and tell the man, I need three loaves of bread. I need food to give to my traveler that's staying at my house. But the man inside gives him all the reasons why he cannot do this. The family's children are asleep. Family's asleep. It's too much trouble. The door's locked. But ultimately, he gets up 
and gives him what he needs. Now, there's a point to this. Um, because it was not that the man did not have it in the capacity to give the man the three loaves of bread. He just did not want to do it at that time. And so because of the man's persistence, the man gives him what he needs. He will not take no for an answer. So in teaching this about the lesson of teach us to pray, Jesus gives us the pattern for prayer, and now he gives us a, a parable, and next he's going to give us a principle. Here's the principle. It's in verses 11 to 13. If, if the neighbor gets up and gives the man what he needs, only because of the man's impudence, as the word is used, I'll explain that in a few moments, he says, how much more will your Father in heaven... So now he's back to where we started. How did the, the model prayer begin? Father. Now he's coming back to that and he's saying, if even the unwilling neighbor gets up to give the food, how much more? It's a contrast. Don't ever think that God's like the neighbor who doesn't want to help and you've just got to bother him until he gives in. He's saying, how much more will your father, your father give to his children? And then he asks some rather rhetorical questions, a way of contrast. And he says, what worthy parent, what good father, uh, if his child comes to him and says, Daddy, I, uh, we don't know whether it was a pet, a fish as a pet, or whether he wanted a, a fish sandwich. He says, if he says, I need a fish, yeah, I'll give you something. I'll give you a snake. How about that? Or he says, I, need, I would like some breakfast. How about an egg? Oh, yeah, I've got something you can eat. How about this poisonous scorpion? And Jesus is saying, if even those of us who are sinful fathers, no, we would not do that to our child, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him that he generously gives to us? So he's saying we should be expectant. We should be expectant as we go to God, asking, seeking, and knocking, and we don't just go to God in a perfunctory manner praying about things with no expectation that they will happen. Now, what are some marks of expectant prayer? One, it's specific. What was the request of the neighbor? Three loaves now. That was it. Not tomorrow, not next week, not ten loaves, not one loaf. I need three loaves of bread, and I need it now. It was a specific Request, And Jesus concludes that by saying, ask and it will be given to you. So to be specific is to be precise. It's beyond general. And the word there for impudence, he says the man will get up, not because he wants to help him, but because of his impudence. The word is shameless. It means without shame. It's the picture of a person begging. I was watching a scene out of a movie a few weeks ago, and it was depicting a scene from the Great Depression. And here is a man, he has several small children, he and his wife, and they live in this run-down urban apartment. And he needs money because the utilities have been turned off and they do not have food and the, the social companies uh, are going to come and take the children away. And he comes into this boardroom where there are men that were well-to-do at that time. And they are friends of his. They know him. They know he's a worker at the docks. And he begs them. He says, I am going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my children. I have got to have like $100, something like that. So he passes a hat, and everybody's embarrassed. They're embarrassed for him. 
They're embarrassed that he's having to do this. They're embarrassed that, that this is the situation. That's the term for impudence. Because of his shamelessness, he's almost he's willing to do anything to beg. I need the three loaves. I don't care if this is beneath me. This is what has to happen. So we pray specifically. Have you ever kept a prayer list of requests and answers to those prayers? I hope you have, and I assume many of you have. It's a very good idea to do so. If for your own benefit, not to show off to others necessarily, but that a year from now or three years from now or ten years from now, you can look down on that list and see, wow, look what God did. And he did that, that, and that. Perhaps the most famous person to do this in the past couple of hundred years was George Mueller. It's difficult to read any modern book on prayer without reading about the example of George Mueller. He lived in the middle 1800s in England. He ran an orphanage, and he was a man not only of prayer but of great faith. Many biographies have been written about George Mueller. And he said the minister wrote down prayer requests because he believed that a permanent record of answers to prayer will help accumulate, quote, evidence in my own experience that God is to us personally a prayer-hearing God. Now, how many prayers do you think George Mueller recorded that he saw answers to? 500? 1,000? 50,000 prayers. 50,000 is how many he wrote down and saw the answers to. And of those 50,000, 10,000 were answered on the very day the prayers were offered. One biographer said, on one occasion, eight specific requests were put on record, together with a solemn conviction that having asked in conformity with the will of God in the name of Jesus, then Mueller had confidence in him and that he hears and that he has the petitions thus asked of him. So George Mueller would pray specifically, but he did that in accordance with his, the will of God, understanding that God's wisdom and God's glory overruled anything that he might have thought should be the outcome. Now, here's one example. I'm going to give you an example that's, that's pretty well known. On March the 9th, 1842, the resources of the orphanage were exhausted. They were out of food. For years, George Mueller had never asked for money to run the orphanage. He simply prayed for their needs, and God supplied. But on this particular day, the money had run out. Mueller did what he knew to do. He gathered the people at the orphanage and some friends together in the morning, and they prayed. Then the mail came, but it provided no relief. Then, just as all hope seemed to be lost, a special delivery letter arrived. And it was a letter that had initially been delivered at a wrong address. So it was late getting there, and it contained a sizable gift mailed from another city. The timely arrival meant that the Lord had begun to answer the morning prayer several days before. The Lord interwove events and thoughts and the heart of the donor and the postal service and the bank transfers and Mueller's prayers. He used all those to culminate in the donation arriving at the needed moment. Now, this does not mean that George Mueller lived because he saw 50,000 answers to prayer. It does not mean he had an easy life. 
or that all of his needs were met. He prayed many th- for many things that God did not answer that way. And I would assume, my guess would be, that if he saw 50,000 specific answers to prayer, perhaps there were half a million he did not see. Because throughout his lifetime, he buried two stillborn children, a one-year-old son, an adult daughter. He had two wives through the years. They both died. So why would God allow such different responses to prayer? Why were some things answered, like the, the food and the money for food that particular day, but the others not? Of course, we will not know until we are in heaven. I think we should pray specifically as an act of worship. R.C. Sproul, in his little booklet on prayer, he wrote this, because he thinks sometimes that we are frustrated in prayer. If you're ever frustrated in prayer and you wonder what's the point, I mean, you know, it's just nothing seems to happen. If you're frustrated, he thinks it's because you pray in vague generalities. Here's the way he put it. When all of our prayers are either vague or universal in scope, it is difficult for us to experience the exhilaration that goes with clear and obvious answers to prayer. If we ask God to bless everyone in the world or to forgive everyone in town, it would be difficult to see the prayer answered in any concrete way. Sproul goes on and says, Having a broad scope of interest in prayer is not wrong. But if all prayer is so general, then no prayer will have specific and concrete application. There is something exhilarating in a good way that gives God the glory when we see him answer specific prayer. We're not testing him. We're not asking him like a dog to jump through our hoops but we are taking his invitation seriously, what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 11. I was privileged to see a young man come to faith in Christ through me talking with him over a period of time. His name was Bill. He was from a very religious background, but not a Christian background, per se. And we, we met together with a few other people, and we would pray. And one day, as we came to pray, we said, we want to pray specifically. Bill, what would you like for us to pray for? And Bill said, well, there's... There's this Bible study I've been inviting a friend of mine named Terry to attend. And Terry never comes. Every week he's got a different excuse. And I'd really like for him to come tonight at our Bible study. And so we went around the room, those of us at a table, and said, can we all believe God is powerful enough to bring Terry to that Bible study? Yes. Do we all agree that from what we can tell, it would honor Christ for Terry to come to that Bible study? Yes. We prayed, prayed specifically that Terry would come. My phone rings that night, and Bill calls me up and said, Chip, you're not going to believe who showed up today. He, Terry, had come. And here's this young Christian, only a few months old in the faith, and he is just, God works. God works. And I saw what it did for his faith, for my faith. I could give you many, many, many other stories like that. So do you involve the Lord in your daily decisions and your daily activities what does Philippians 4 say? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. <laughs> Some people think, well, God's only concerned about the big things, so I don't pray about the little things. Others say, well, I think God's concerned about the little things, but not the big things. Philippians 4 says pray about everything. There's nothing too small, and there's nothing too big. And if you say, well, this is so small, yeah, I worried about it for the past four months, but I know it's small relative to the problems of the world. Okay, 
but it's still an issue with you. Pray about it and pray specifically about it. Would you believe it? I'm a third of the way through the sermon. And we're out of time. I believe it because I saw it happen at the first service. So I'm jumping to the end, and I'm going to try and do major editorial work and somehow another work this in next week. I want to end um, uh, uh, quickly with uh, a section from Doug Kelly's book, If God is in Control, Why Pray? That book's been reprinted. It's still available. It's less than $10. Douglas Kelly, If God is in Control, Why Pray? And by the way, at the end of that book, he, in the appendix, he gives a plan for reading the Bible six days a week, and you'll get through the Bible in a year. It's a very creative plan where you do three chapters a day from different sections of the Bible. And now in the second part of the appendix, he's got a plan for how to spend 45 minutes a day in prayer. And he walks you through six different categories and tell, tells you how to do it. So if you need a Bible reading plan or prayer plan, and you don't want to buy the book, go to my blog. I put it on there Friday, pastorchipmiller.com, and you can cut and paste the plans. It's the last two entries on the blog. I, I copied, I scanned the parts out of his book and put them there on the blog for this purpose. Now, here's the conclusion of the sermon. In his book, If God's in Control, Why Pray?, He's talking about how God moves us to pray for certain things. He moves other people at the same time, unknowingly, often to answer those prayers, all for his glory. Douglas Kelly did graduate work in Scotland, and he was classmates with a man named Willie Black. Willie is a pastor in Scotland at the time this was written. Willie is married with children, and he'd been a faithful pastor at a small congregation for a number of years. He had faithfully tried to teach the Bible to shepherd that flock, was very confident in the call that he had to be there. And he liked to expose the church to missionaries, so he would invite missionaries to come and to speak. On one particular uh, meeting, he had uh, a missionary or two from Korea. They were with Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and they were speaking to the congregation when Willie Black, who was sitting on the platform said, I felt a burden come upon me like I'd never felt. It's like a weight came down on me. He said, I was sitting up there, and I was consumed with this burden as I listened to these people talk. And I, I was thinking to myself, how am I able going to be able to get up and complete the service at the end? Well, he was able to. He went home that night. He didn't say anything about this to anybody, but he just felt weighted down that something is... God is telling me something. Now, this is a Scottish preacher. They don't do spontaneous, okay? This was very unusual. The next morning, he gets up. He feels better, but he can't forget what he was thinking about the night before. His family and he are leaving for a two-week vacation. So he knows, good, I won't be around the people at the church. I'm not going to say anything about this. They travel. They spend the night with a friend in Scotland who's a Christian, another pastor. And Willie is determined, I'm not saying a word about, about all the specifics, but he said I, that morning he prayed, Lord, I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to ask you for a sign. I need to know if this is from you. Are you trying to tell me something about missions in Korea? So without me telling anyone, if you want me to really pay attention, would someone today mention to me the country of Korea? They go to the, the man's house that night as they're traveling. They spend the night. And he tells his pastor friend about the feeling he had had. He did not mention the, where the missionaries were from. He didn't say anything specific. 
except that I got burdened during the service last night, not sure what God's trying to tell me. The friend immediately said, well, Willie, maybe God's calling you to be a missionary to Korea. Now, Doug Kelly, in writing his book, says it several months later, and Willie is telling him this from the apartment they've just moved into in Pusan, Korea, where he and his family now have moved as missionaries. But the story's not over. During the first month that they are there, Willie's just getting his feet wet to what his responsibilities are going to be in the ministry of which he's going to serve. And they've been instructed that you are not to engage in any kind of teaching, preaching ministry for like at least the first six months you were there while you're learning the culture. They've been there less than a month, and these three pastors, Korean pastors, come to the apartment, and they talk to him, and they say, we need you to do something. We need you to begin teaching us how to preach the Bible, to do expository preaching. And Willie says, I can't do that. Our mission agency says you have to be here so many months before I, I can start. He also did not tell them that that was the sense of call he had. He came there because he was burdened to teach people to preach, to teach pastors to preach the Bible. And they said, but you have to be able to. You have to. In fact, we've been praying. We started praying for this very thing on, and he named the exact month when Willie had had that, what happened to him at his church. And Douglas Kelly makes observations. So here's God moving these preachers a major part of the planet away to pray for someone, for God to send them someone to teach them to preach. He moves in this guy's heart. He's got a burden to teach people to preach. And he brings this whole thing together in this unusual way, all in answer to specific prayer. i got to crash land this plane right now, very abruptly. I hope you'll go on that blog, get the plan for reading the Bible and for praying. Let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, look ahead to the day when prayers will not be necessary, when we are with you through Christ. And regardless of whether we are people that have prayed a lot in the past, but not so much now, whether we are just learning as babies, crawling and stumbling how to pray, whether we are men and women very committed to prayer, we ask that we, like the disciples, would sit at Jesus' feet and say, teach us to pray. So we pray that even this coming week, that we might grow in this area to pray specifically and persistently and in accordance with your will as revealed in the Lord's Prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.